0: at
1: rogers center talking with the Toronto blue jays i am mark shapiro
0: hey what's going on it's at the letters brought to you by the all-new 2019 ford ranger with available fx4 off-road package everything needed to get maximum fun out of every adventure is in the FX Four Off Road Package with the all new twenty nineteen Ford Ranger. Arden Zwelling here. Ben Nicholson Smith is with me, uh, and we have just left the office of one Mark Shapiro, who is the president of the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, and a man who was kind enough to spend an hour with us talking about a lot of different things. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. It was, you know, we were kind of talking beforehand what we
1: wanted to ask Mark about, and then you kind of realize there is so many different directions you can take it because, obviously. Toronto Blue Jays president and CEO, so we want to talk Blue Jays with him. Right. He's been in the news himself as yeah. far as his job status, so that's something that we wanted to ask him about. And then you have MLB-wide issues like competition, um, what it means to compete in the American League, what it means to engage fans with the game of baseball. So there are a lot of ways that we wanted this conversation to go.
0: Yeah, even the business aspects of the Toronto Blue Jays and the operation, attendance, and Rogers Center renovations. What's going on in Dunedin? You know, he's got his finger in, in a lot of different pots. So uh, he was kind enough to give us the time to go over all those topics and more. So let's get right to it. This is uh, our interview with Toronto Blue Jays president, Mark Shapiro. Mark Shapiro is here with us. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for coming down. I wasn't thinking about starting with the Washington Nationals, but it's kind of <laughs> front of mind for me. It's walk-
2: hard not to be. Yeah, yeah it's hard w- not to be.
0: I watched them jump up and down on that mound last night. And I just kind of thought as, as a rival executive, I mean, what do you take away from how they've achieved what they've achieved? What do you think you can learn it's from It's always
2: interesting, you know, when you look at postseason, you, you, even though we're, we've moved as an industry to a much more... Kind of analytical approach and much less anecdotal, and try not to cling on small sample sizes. It's impossible not to be emotionally impacted by watching a team. So I think there are some clear takeaways, things that have always been, in, you know, kind of a point of contention for me with certain people that are around me in my career. And one is just get in, anything can happen. I mean, three there, week you know, there is a randomness. Two postseason, and to deny that would be there is not a randomness to the teams that get in. You know, they are over 162. If you get in, you know, you deserve to be there. You know, you prevailed over the rigors of a ridiculous schedule, unlike any and all professional sport. But any way you get in, even if you are an imperfect team, and they are an imperfect team. If you've got two really good starters, you know which they have, which clearly the Astros have too, uh once you get in, anything can happen if you're hot at the right time, so they're you know, a team that clearly was, what, you know, 19 games under 500 or something to start the year. And they were then,
0: where you were after 50
2: games. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 And then Two they, very divergent paths right. from that point. I mean, they have a lot different- Yeah, of course. built team. I also, the other thing, and it's a little more anecdotal, but I've, I've always been a big believer in, like, looking at the different segments of the player population- And feeling like when you're ready to win, you need representation from all three. So you need young players, you know, obviously Robles and Taylor and, you know, really hyper talented young players that give you upside and tons of energy and frankly can just play, you know, and stay healthy. You need players in their prime like Rendon, you know, and Trey Turner, guys like that, like right in the middle of their prime because they're the most reliable performance and you you can bank on what they're capable of. And then you need veteran players. Um, and they're volatile because they get hurt a lot and they have dips in performance. But those are the guys that want to win. They're the guys that can handle the pressure a little better and they're the guys that make younger players better. More than anything, though, that at that point in their career, winning is what matters to them. Young guys are happy to be there. Guys that are in the middle of their career want to get paid. They're looking at, like, you know, a lot of the self-interest. The veteran guys have done all that. They've gotten there. They've had careers. They've gotten paid. They want to win. So some of that burning desire of kind of talking to the other guys in the clubhouse that Howie Kendrick can do, um, that Max Scherzer can do, and the pitching staff, like, it's certainly something to pay attention to. It reinforces those two things for me, though. A, just get in. Find a way to get in. Anything can happen. And B, make sure you're cognizant of the fact that you can't do it all young, all prime, you know, all old. You know, you need to have a balance.
1: Uh, How closely do you watch the kind of trends, the changing usage of pitchers, for example, or the different roster composition that might lead to success in the playoffs? You guys obviously are preparing for your own offseason now, but As the playoffs unfold, how closely do you watch for those types of big picture trends?
2: Well, again, I would say what you don't want to do is be emotionally you don't want. I mean, what everything we do in a front office perspective is try to take out bias. Right. And there's a recency bias and and that happens on a small sample size of postseason. So. I think what you can look at in postseason is what works in postseason, but not necessarily what works in building teams. And uh, you can try to think about maybe team composition, character, makeup, personality, the attributes that enable some teams to be better than you think they would be. Certainly in the National League, the two most talented teams are not playing right now. Like, the two most talented teams were not playing in the end, just on pure talent. Like, the Dodgers and the Braves were clearly the most talented two teams. So, you know, you go back and you think about what are the reasons for that. Was it randomness? Was it, is it something else? Is it something in the way those teams are composed or made up? Is there some flaw? Is it just bad luck? Those are the questions you try to think through. But I do think, Ben, it's more important probably not to spend too much energy and time on that and to look at the best teams that got there uh, and think more about you're building a team for 162 and, you know, does the team have the ability, you know, we'd love to get to the point that we've already kind of built a team for the 162 and you're like the Braves where you're winning eight straight years and you're just thinking about, you know, we know we're going to get in. How do we build a team better once we get in?
1: But you guys would rather be the Dodgers than the second wildcard team.
2: Certainly rather be the Dodgers. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're, again, your chances are better, you know, over a continuum. But you want to build it, I think, again, and we get back to really trying to build something sustainable. I guess what I would say is build it to get in, to keep getting in with the belief that, you know, if you do that, it's there's going to be a year when everything kind of comes together. Yeah.
0: To me, the championship of baseball is awarded after 162 This is the way I look at it. This What's yeah. happening right now is like a little tournament.
2: As a front office executive, that's definitely, you know, it's, it's like the secret. You don't say it because it's not what fans want, but it's certainly something that, you know, I always have kind of believed and felt like that is truly really a better reflection of your work than what happens in the postseason now. Having been a GM when we led the major league in victories, and then you know lost in Game Seven of the ALCS, feeling and replaying that game in my head over and over again, and being up three-one in that series, and not and having you know CC Sabathio, you know Jake Westbrook, and Fausto Carmona, you know who obviously was Roberto Hernandez later in his career, but Fausto Carmona at that time, you know slated to pitch, thinking we only had to win one game. Obviously, since I can recite that so clearly, you do not lose that, you know, <laughs> you, you you just once you get there, you want to like take advantage of it and win the whole thing. And that's really what it's about. And I think that is what it's about for fans. But I think if you're just looking at kind of evaluating a front office's job, you know, a better reflection of their job it is really what they did, what the team does over 162.
0: Shifting focus to the Blue Jays, uh, I think a topic that's front of mind for most fans right now is actually you and your future with the team. I hope Um, not. (laughs) (laughs) It it frankly is. I hope they're just thinking about the team. (laughs) Well, your name's in the news a lot lately, Mark.
2: (laughs) I think that's just because we're not playing. (laughs) And that's part of it, right, right, right. is that
0: there's no games right now. Um, And this is also the time of year when typically teams are filling vacancies in the front office or managerially before the calendar kind of turns, the winter meetings towards 2020 and recent Ken Rosenthal report that you're entering the final year of your contract with the Blue Jays and that there's an openness from you and the Blue Jays to an extension, but that there has been no solid movements or there, you know, there's nothing concrete right now. Where do you stand right now as you yeah. enter the final year of, of your deal?
2: Well, Ben tweeted out something at my end of the year media session. I mean, A, there's, I mean, man, I'm so reluctant to talk about my contract situation, but I feel like if I don't, it could become a bigger distraction. I don't think the news should be about front office guys' contracts. I feel like they should just be handled and you're there until you're not there. I say this with complete sincerity as much as it may be hard for you guys to believe. Like, I honestly don't give it much thought at all. Like, I never have. You know, it's 29. This will be my 29th season. I just kind of believe if you do a good job and continue to focus on doing the job and not about, you know, your tenure, your status, that it all kind of takes care of itself. That being said, you know, the things that I've been completely clear on, which I think gives some insight into it. There are very few people in any job, let alone in professional sports, who can say, I love where I am. So I say where I am, like the city of Toronto, Canada, very different for me than where I spent the first 24 years of my career. You know, I wake up every day feeling fortunate to be here, you know, and... It's been everything I would have expected and more. I love you know who I'm working with. You know we've really made an effort to build something, and I feel like the people I'm around, whether it's the business side or the baseball side of the organization, are people that I wake up excited to see and talk to every day, and um, excited to be in the trenches with and fight. Um, and I love what I'm doing. You know, like I love the building process, and you know whether it's thinking about. How do we make Dunedin a competitive advantage? Whether you're thinking about how do we, you know, handle this offseason juncture, how do we, you know, elevate young players to be leaders and think about leadership or what can we do to help you know our staff have all the tools and resources they need to be the best they can be and where the competitive advantages lie and all the things that we talked about prior. I love doing that. So where I am, who I'm doing it with, and what I'm doing. I really don't have a need to change any of those things. And I think I've gotten positive feedback, you know, from the people I work for. It's a very unique um, situation in that we don't have a day-to-day owner sitting in this building with us. And it's an incredible level of empowerment for me, uh, which is also something I value and appreciate and don't take for granted. Again, I cannot be absolute, but my guess is that, you know everything will continue to move forward. I'll be here next year and the year and the year after that. And at some point though, you know, obviously the, your, your work, you know, we've made great progress in areas that, fans might not necessarily appreciate, building out infrastructure, creating a a really good process that will lead us to sustainable winning, improving facilities, you know, and resources and adding resources. But at some point, results have to follow all of that, you know, and it takes time, you know, to build a sustainable organization and a championship environment. But um, the results are going to have to follow. We really are only a year and a half into rebuilding. So I feel like we're on an elevated time frame. Like we didn't really turn the clock and say we are absolutely rebuilding until halfway through the 2018 season. History can tell you how long it takes. It can take much quicker. It can take you know four to five years. It just depends. But I feel like we're on an elevated time frame, and so hopefully results will follow and won't be an issue, a question for anybody. It'll just be you know we hope Mark stays.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when you look around the game at different contract statuses of managers or executives, there are some instances where you have like a Joe Madden and it can become a big distraction. And there are lots of instances where people are in the last years of their deals and we don't even know it. I mean, I'm sure that's the case with lots of people in your organization. So what's the balancing act there? Or is there a point where that becomes important to have some extended stability going forward? Or is that something that you think, you know, going into the final year of a contract that can play out and be perfectly fine? Good
2: question. Good question in a large media market um, that has a thirst for information and a lot of people that need to report and write on, you know, what's happening when you're not playing or there's not a lot of sensational transactions going on. It becomes something you can write about and something to talk about. I think as it really gets down to how it affects people that work here day to day, in particular players, they're not thinking about it you know and I've had I've had arguments with people about this. I think Stephen Brunt and I talked about it like it they care but they don't care like they so this is a couple things I'd say Ben I think if you're able to have continuity, stability and consistency in an environment where emotion and momentum often forces decisions and change, it is a competitive advantage. You know, if you look at the great organizations in sport, whether it's the Pittsburgh Steelers who keep the same head coach or the Baltimore Ravens in the NFL or or baseball organizations that, you know, have fought the urge and the need to kind of feed the monster because once you start changing, it's perpetual change. And once you change, it's kind of reinventing yourself. If you have the ability and the strength to stick with a group of people or to stick with a leadership group, um, as long as you're aligned in kind of the way you're driving, then you can course adjust. Then you can make adjustments. You can change, you can evolve, you can learn from your experiences. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. There is no perfect front office. There is no perfect major league manager. But over time, the best ones will learn. And if you stick with them over that time, they will learn and understand from their experiences, from their environment they're in, and they'll be able to adjust and adapt and get better. And if you keep getting better, sooner or later, you're going to be one of the best. So I still think, you know, when I think about, and obviously I, preach this to our owners in cleveland and we lived it in cleveland that stability consistency continuity is a competitive advantage if you've got other teams around you who are constantly changing because they feel the need to follow the latest trend to react to you know sentiment on social media you know you've got to have the strength and the toughness frankly to stay the course and to continue to learn and adapt
0: I think you're right that you, you've been very consistent saying you love where you work, who you work for, who you work with. I mean, I might be reading between lines, but I've, you know, maybe you've alluded to the fact that the political climate, even in Canada, is a bit more aligned with your values. That is very true. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with you on that. But check back with me in a week.
2: <laughs> I have no problem saying that publicly, <laughs> um, but regardless then, of what happens in a week, right? Yeah, in contrast well, of, what, of the country <laughs> that I came from.
0: <laughs> but then it's interesting to see your name come up in a Sports Business Daily report um, about possibly replacing Jim Delaney or being on a short list of yeah. candidates to be the Big Ten. He's Commissioner. To, easy
2: to like respond to that i mean i it's been misreported i mean 100 really? percent. yes do i get contacted for jobs and was i contacted for that one yes someone approached me about that have i entered into any interviews i can honestly say that in 29 years there's only one job i've pursued or interviewed for and that's this one right throughout my time here and throughout that does that mean i get contacted yes yeah i mean that's not just me that's Other established executives, do I fit the model? Have people approached me about five or six things since I've been here? Yes. Yes. On the record, people have approached me about five or six different jobs since I've been here outside of baseball.
0: And when those opportunities come to you, how much do you consider them?
2: My nature in general is to be measured, but I have not engaged past looking at a job description and talking to someone. i have not engaged in any interviews, which means you can't get very far along if you withdraw before you get interviewed, including the Big Ten. That's a complete mischaracterization. I did not interview. Yeah.
0: Right. So, but through kind of recruiters like Corn Ferry, who you have a prior relationship with? It's not just them. Yeah. But those are the types of like- Or just
2: other other people in the industry or other people. It's a small world, small sports world. Right. You know? I'd imagine those are going to stop coming at some point. So, you know, it's like I'm just—I'm just, I'm just going to be an old—I'm just going to be an old guy. You know? um, I love the disbelief Arden has that I would be yeah. approached by people. No, 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 that's not a disbelief at all.
0: I'm just the disbelief that you wouldn't consider other opportunities.
2: I mean, listen, I've—I I've, think if you look at the history, it's a pretty good indicator. Like, I'm not a grass is greener guy. You know, like I tend to. Be a guy that's very introspective and thoughtful, but the things that I value are the opportunities to lead and the opportunities to lead without compromising the values I believe in and to lead with uh, and to ensure that I'm able to work with people that I'm aligned with, um, that I share a set of values with and a vision of what we're working towards. I mean, at this point, like I can absolutely tell you this, and this probably stands for every work environment in the world. There is no perfect. Right. It is all trade-offs. Yeah. There are trade-offs everywhere you go, so every single person has to pick where the trade-offs are for them, and they're going to be dependent on that person's individual makeup and and as they kind of frame their values of what's important to them in life, you weight different things, and for everybody, that's going to be different. For some people, it's just going to be resources. It's just going to be chance to win. Nothing else matters. I'm going to go with the situation that gives me just the best chance to win. For other people, it's going to be the situation that gives me the best chance to win, but also build and have control over strategy and decisions and culture and all those different other things. So I know myself, I know both where my skills lie and where my challenges are, um, and I know also what makes me happy, fulfilled, at peace, and content. Um, and so I tend to, to gravitate towards situations or value situations that, you know, provide that for me.
0: I think we all want to continue to grow and evolve and be challenged. Like yeah. you said, in any career, and what Ben and I do, and in, in what you do, you've been running baseball clubs for 29 years. Yeah. Like you said, for an off in 2001, you took over as GM of, of Cleveland. Um, you've been doing the same thing for a long time. Are you still, do you still feel like you're growing and evolving and yeah, being challenged?
2: I, mean, I love the like, look back at the trajectory and I think that the way the industry has evolved, man, I mean, it's almost like something out of like a, an old movie, right? Like when I was assistant GM in Cleveland like or farm director in Cleveland, we were making trades with stat books on our laps. Right. You know, paper scouting reports and filing cabinets behind the desk. I remember John Hart telling me he was never going to turn his computer on until he could touch the screen and use it that way. Well, guess what? You know, like <laughs> that ultimately yeah. you could do that and raising hands in the room like it was basically just that, you know, anecdotal and that kind of just old school process to the point where the inception of analytics to the point where the Rays and the Yankees have 20-person analytics staffs and advanced mathematicians in place. And everybody's kind of looking for small incremental advantages to where technology like Rapsodo and Edgertronics are revolutionizing the way we coach players. So I guess what I'm saying, Arden, is within that, yes, man, there's like the game is evolving, the way we teach, develop, the way we identify talent, the way we acquire talent, the information that goes into that, it keeps getting more and more. It keeps getting better and better. The opportunities to gain competitive advantage keep getting smaller and smaller, which makes it harder. But for someone that wants to learn and grow and adapt, um, this is a great forum to do it because it's changing every single day.
1: Yeah, I guess almost leading baseball operations would maybe be the same title or similar title, but the actual job description in the last 20 years or 30 years has changed so much that oh it's almost like a totally different job.
2: It's a totally different job. I mean, it was kind of just, you know, the, the, and I think this, this is hard for kind of fans. And I think it's sometimes hard for, for some of the maybe old school media to embrace. Like, I get the sense that they just want to look at it as one person. Yeah. You know, who's making the decision? Is it Ross? Is it Mark? And I heard the exact same thing in Cleveland. Is it Chris Antonetti? Is it Mark Shapiro? So I hear that, you know, the, the Shatkins thing here with Chapinetti in Cleveland. Like really? it's, huh. oh yeah, go back and look. So it's not, <laughs> it's, it's hard for people to conceive that by the time it gets to a decision, it rarely has to be one person. You know, it's a process that leads you there. And I know I get beat up for using that word all the time, but it's the process just simply means we're taking all of the objective information, the analytics, the data, both our own proprietary work, you know, that Joe Sheehan is leading, you know, with Jeremy Reeser and Spencer Estee and the group of guys over there and Sanjay to, you know, the things that we can publicly source. We're taking the medical information. You know, like we feel like it could be an advantage for us to analyze, you know, what does a player's career look like over the trajectory, the ability, the durability, the ability to stay healthy. We're looking at makeup, character and personality. You know, what kind of teammate is that guy going to be? How is he going to function over 220 days, you know, in our clubhouse? Is he going to be productive, positive, neutral, negative? You know, are there other things we have to worry about off the field that could derail his career? And then we're clearly looking at subjectively projecting his talent. We're going back to scouts who actually, by the way, are also using models or just using the model in their memory right. to compare and project tools against all the other players they've looked at in the history of, of evaluating players. And we're weighting all those things together, um, and we're using models more to do that now than we used to do, which helps us make better decisions and regress out bias. Um, and when we arrive at you know a decision – All those different parts of the organization are contributing, right? The analysts, the scouts, the medical staff, the mental performance staff, the front office staff, and and how they assemble it and weight it. And then it does go down to one or two people's desk at the end. But by the time you've gone through that whole process, we spend more time refining that process And thinking about how it can be better and what better inputs and where can we get better people and better systems and all those things, then we do like how do we make a better decision? We we learn from our decisions.
0: And the idea of that process is to get a good result in terms of drafting the right player, right? I think it's
2: all that's it. I mean, but it's not just drafting, it's or
0: trading for or developing. I would
2: say, Arden, it's absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's the job. I always look at the job like this it's identifying talent. Yeah. So that would be. Could be anywhere. It could be identifying a high school player, a junior college player, a college player, a Latin American player, and you know, an international free agent, or a player from another organization professionally, or a major league free agent. Yeah. You know, so it's identified talent, then it's acquisition. So strategy of how you acquire that can that be draft, that can be trade, you know, that can be free agent sign, that can be any number of things. After you identify and acquire, it's developing a lot. Like we work in a business and industry where development probably is the single greatest opportunity for a competitive advantage right now. So it's developing, helping a player achieve his potential mentally, physically, fundamentally. How do you help a player as consistently as possible play to his potential? And then it's taking the sum of all of that and building a team. Right. And when you build a team, you're ultimately looking to build a team that's better than it should be objectively, right? So if we are just as good as our talent dictates, then we will likely be a third place team for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. So we need to be better than our talent. And so then we think about things like the Washington Nationals and other teams, like what leads certain teams to be better than their talent. Some of it is coaching, some of it is player usage, some of it is the chemistry and the makeup, you can poo-poo those words or you can like understand like the impact of human dynamics and what it means to be in that environment. But we're always looking for all the little things, not one big thing, but hundreds of little things that will help us be better than just our talent because that's where the championships lie.
0: And at the end of that process, you end up with a player, right? Like on just a single case basis, you end up with a first round pick. At the or, end
2: of identification
0: and yes. acquisition, you end up with a player. And so often players fail. For a lot of different reasons. And yeah, so often you're going to. 90% make,
2: of the time in this business. Yeah, yeah.
0: And you're, as a front office, you might make errors in terms of who well, you're you going to make errors. Yeah. You're going to make errors. You know, when your process is that collaborative, how do you determine where the fail point was in the process?
2: Oh, I mean, I think if you're doing a good job, you are constantly self evaluating, constantly dissecting, and constantly attempting to learn. Mm-hmm. You can do that either through studying you know your own history and performance versus you know in the context of an industry um, it's really hard like I tend to see like when are public you know evaluations or front offices or it's so anecdotal man they never go back and look at the context well this was a bad draft pick well are you really looking at the history of all like number 11 draft picks in the first round and what the expected outcome is for that? Or are you just anecdotally saying that you think the number 11 draft pick should be an impact player? Because guess what? It really probably shouldn't be an right. impact player. If You're lucky if you get an everyday player out of that spot. So I think we want to evaluate, but we want to evaluate in the context of a very measured understanding. and We want to learn from where we have bad performances, figure out the reason why, develop learn and grow off of those things sometimes it's going to be through our own studies sometimes it's going to be decision making models that learn on their own like that's what a model does a model learns
1: yeah but I think you know it makes sense right you guys are a big business this isn't a coffee shop where you need one person to say like we want this kind of roast and we want this kind of decor like it has to be more systematic and it can't be even though people like the idea of Having this kind of maverick GM, yeah, you look around at the teams that are advancing this far, and for the yeah, most part, Houston, right, the
2: Dodgers, the Cleveland, Cubs, the Cleveland, Tampa, like New York. those are the one. New York, the have they have as they've evolved, the clubs that are there year after year are the clubs that are doing it. You that have killer front offices that have devastating front offices that have not just one person. It's maybe one person setting the tone for that or empowering those other people, but and again, it's not as fun for a fan to sit back and say what was what was Ross thinking you yeah, know like right. well you know Ross wasn't it wasn't Ross's thoughts alone you know it was Mike Murov and Joe Sheehan and Sanjay and Jeremy Reeser and Steve Sanders and Tony LaCava and that's not as fun right. you know right.
0: <laughs> Fans don't want to intellectualize
2: things. That, that is Arden, that is, I mean, that is that is something I say all the time. Like and I learned that like early in my career as I was trying to explain why we didn't sign Manny Ramirez as a free agent. It was like, this is I was assistant GM, a young assistant GM, and I went into like a Harvard business school uh, alumni speaking function. I'm explaining it and the CEO of a big corporation in Cleveland was like killing me. Yeah. And I walked out of there going, Man, like he just didn't get it. And I'm like, oh, he doesn't want to get it like he runs a you know fortune 500 company but he doesn't want to get why we didn't sign Manny he just wants us to sign Manny Ramirez and so one of the hardest aspects of these jobs is to not let that impact you not let the fact that you know you go when I go to get my coffee this morning there's going to be three people giving you free advice and then when you go pick up your kids at school you're going to get some more free advice and then when you walk and get your haircut you're going to get some more free advice and everybody has an opinion You know, everybody has a strong feeling and everybody feels like they probably know what's best, but there are people here, not me, who are spending 80 hours a week, you know, thinking about what the best decisions are and how we can get better. And I choose to kind of go with them probably, you know, and their intellect and their work ethic and their structure, you know, for leading us to a better outcome. And the better your process is in getting that outcome, the better chance you have to learn if it doesn't work out.
0: Your involvement as a president in baseball operations, then, um, I'm like genuinely curious how deep into the weeds would you get into what your analysts are telling you about Anthony Kay's track band data or yeah. Alex Manoa's makeup profile? Yeah. Or do you just leave that to others? Because you're involved, but it's not entirely clear to what so, degree.
2: I-, I guess the easiest way to look at it is this like, I'm the president of the company, the CEO of the company the highest leverage aspect of our organization, like what's going to lead us to be successful at the largest level that every single aspect has an important role is our baseball operation. Like it can hide a lot of things that we do on, you know, a lot of the challenges that we have and, you know, with the stadium or the market or anything, you know, with the exchange rate and it can, you know, put an explanation point on a well-run business as well, you know, but in the end, like, our success or failure is largely going to be predicated upon our on-field performance. So I will largely move where the leverage lies. You know, I do not focus all of my day on baseball operations. You know, if there's a hundred percent of my time, 10 to 20% is probably on league matters, right. You know, 10 to 20% is probably on ownership issues, just under, you know, having to work with and navigate the, the ownership landscape and make sure that they're informed and they understand what's going on. So, if that's 60 to 80%, then you're the rest of it. You know, there's the business side of the organization and ensuring that we have a good leadership team in place and that we're executing on the things we need to do, whether it's Dunedin, it's moving to where the highest leverage is in that, you know, making sure the Dunedin project gets financed, that our plan ensures the building is best in class and a potential competitive advantage for us. Um, So, it's navigating those things. And then there's the baseball side. I would tend to move where I'm most passionate, which is player development. But mostly I look at it this way. Like, my job is to ensure that we have the best resources possible. Not to make the best decisions, but to make sure we have the best resources. And to make sure we have the capability to get those resources. So budgetary, to advocate, and then to continue to ask questions, to think about, you know, to serve as a resource for Ross as he goes through leading the organization, there are things I would be surprisingly involved in the weeds on, Yeah. you know, maybe a development conversation because that's my passion and right. that's my history. And there would be other things, you know, that I would probably not be involved with at all, like track man data. Not that I don't look at it, but that I'm just lead- looking at it and letting it go. when it comes to us making a high leverage decision or setting an off-season strategy, while I may not be involved in every step of the way, I'm certainly going to be involved, but I'm just one of the guys in the room. I'm like Mike Murov. I'm no le- more or less involved than him or Joe or Jeremy. Like those guys might be more involved than me because if they're living it 24-7. So I think the fact that I've done the job, that I'm not a president who never did the job. I did that job for nine years.
0: Farm director too.
2: And a farm yeah. director and assistant GM. The fact that I've done all those jobs make me realize just how hard they are to do and make me realize how damaging it can be when when someone who's not involved every single minute comes in and just changes the course. So you'll never see me come in and just change the course of what's being done. You'll see me come in and ask questions and try to figure out how I can help, you know, either my past experiences or resources I can ensure we get and are added, and I'm always thinking about performance i'm always thinking about coaching i'm always thinking about teams and building organizations and leadership and how we can be better like i'm that's just that's what i gravitate towards does that
0: does that help yeah no absolutely i was because there there is it's a bit nebulous like how involved
2: it is for operations you are i know it's first of all the job is different for every single team you know it's not one job or like oh this is the president's job like every team some of the teams the president's just a business guy doesn't even touch the, you know, doesn't, doesn't, the GM doesn't even report to him. Right. So that's 90% of the teams. The GM doesn't report to the president. So it's different everywhere.
1: So all of those baseball ops decisions are geared toward making you guys the best team that you can possibly be, obviously. And at this point, you're coming off a 67 win season. There's... Uh, work to be done on the major league side and my question is how much work do you think that is because you look in the american league this year it was 96 wins just to get in I which know. is crazy yeah. so do you expect that to continue do you see the barrier for entry lowering a little bit to more like 88 I, mean, 90? I think
2: that's an aberration like that's yeah. not a trend it's not going to be every every season just the extreme you know four teams over a hundred wins and four teams over 100 losses or whatever. You know, the extreme, the extremity is not something I I look at as like an ongoing trend, just like it's a snapshot in time. And it's funny, like, there are times I wear every single win and loss and feel them all. When people recited to me at the end of the season where you're coming off a 67-win season, it doesn't feel like that to me. You know, I look at the trends in the second half of the year and I feel like we were competing. And then even towards the last month of the season, we started to win more, you know, closer to a 500 team against one of the toughest schedules with one of the youngest teams after having traded a lot of starting pitching. So do I think, like, we're just, like, one or two decisions away from being a championship team? No, man, I'm not, like, Pollyannish about that. But do I think we're better than a 67-win team? Yes, I think we're better than the 67-win team. So I know I'm using words I've used before, but we have moved from you know, just building and providing opportunity to competing, you know, like we competed, like teams felt us. Like I think that's like a big barometer, like talk to the team across the field. They can feel us. You know, Ross said it last night at dinner. He was like, there aren't many GMs who wouldn't want his job. Like yeah. it's a good job to have right now. You know, like they're looking at our young talent and they're looking at the way we play the game. And, you know, Charlie Montoyo's is telling me like managers are telling him like you're doing some pretty special stuff. So, It's momentum building. We move from just building to competing. You know, I think we've got that in us right now. I don't think if you talk to our players, they expect us to just take a step next year. They expect us to win next year. That's a huge part of it, by the way. Right. So I'm not going to set limitations, but I'm also cognizant of like we have multiple steps to take before we're a championship team,
1: which makes sense from the outside looking in at least. But uh, at least the bar would hopefully be ninety wins as opposed to ninety six, because those six wins from ninety to ninety six would be very difficult to come by.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot's been made of me saying in the past, but you know, you you know, and I know, like all wins are not created equal. Like you know, frankly, the wins from eighty seven to ninety one, you know, are probably the hardest wins. You know, so we need to take multiple steps to be the team. I don't in my mind say, okay, we've got to build a 96-win team. I think you just got to build the best team we humanly can and keep looking at getting better.
0: I'm sure internally you have different projections for what you could expect to win next year, depending on how your offseason plays out. We will when we're done our offseason.
2: We're not there yet. Yeah.
0: But you also have a a roster built around a lot of very young players, and there's so much volatility with young players, right?
2: Volatility is good and bad. That's the thing. Volatility provides upside, but it also downside. Vlad
0: Jr. could be a 7-win player. It could be a 2-win player. Like, how do you plan when you are dealing with that volatility? Well,
2: ultimately you can't, you can't plan a championship. The expectations of a playoff team with all young players for that exact reason, right? because the young players provide volatility. Volatility can be really good. They also tend to be on the field more, you know, which is a good thing, but they provide you the upside, but there's also like some downside with those players that's why when we started the conversation and we're talking about the different player segments you know I said you kind of the most dependable reliable performance is the players in the middle you know the players like right in in the, the heart of their career and the prime of their career like those are the guys you can say within a smaller bandwidth we kind of know what to expect from those guys the older guys provide mostly negative volatility not right. a lot of upside and the young guys it's just Wide fluctuations, you know, your season. So when we're the team we need to be, Arden, we've got to be balanced about that. The interesting thing about the young players now is not wanting to turn the page too quickly in any one guy and recognizing you've got to respect it takes 1,500, it takes 2,000 at-bats to really kind of know where you are in that trajectory with a player. So when we go out and look at adding and signing it's not just adding and signing. It's We're also walking away from someone because we have a lot of internal young alternatives of guys that we identified and liked for different yeah. reasons, right? So there are players that it may feel like from a fan's perspective on a small amount of recent information, okay, that guy's not a part of it. He can't play. But there are other guys in this office who thought about the reasons we acquired that player and even some of the performance beneath you know the surface. Yeah that says that player's better than that. That player's, you know, we need to be careful about walking away.
0: There's so many examples in this market. You look at Jose Bautista, Edwin Encarnacion, Josh Donaldson broke out in Oakland, but then yeah. came here and, and won uh, an MVP this award. This market
2: has been an example for the aberrations, you know, right. of, of the older players. Yeah.
0: Well, and you guys walk away from a Gio Urshela and now he's playing in the ALCS. Yeah.
2: Not just us, 30 teams. Right. He cleared waivers, so 30 teams walked away from him. And to, so to me,
0: when you're looking for that competitive advantage, to me, I don't know if you could do this, but it would be identifying... Who those players are and when it's going to turn so like when you're mentioning fans being you know souring on certain individuals i would think of you know a teoscar hernandez who has had his ups and downs or randall grichuk who took a bit of a step back this year how can you determine when you have player an individual a human who could yeah. make that jump and when that jump might happen
2: yeah i think that's exactly right you know, when you figure that out, you can come and tell me. Yeah. But uh no, I mean we're those those are the kind of questions we're constantly wrestling with. We're constantly looking for indicators, both objectively, but often it's human, man. Like that's the cool part. That's where, you know, fans can take some refuge from getting, you know, the the aversion to analytics and data and you know, the separators, the things that often enable, like like, if I had to bet on someone, Teoscar Hernandez is a guy I'd want to bet on. Like if you could be in the clubhouse and you could see both the kind of teammate he is, the way he supports and cares for his other players. If you could see how hard he works, man, like in the end, like in these jobs, you're betting on people, you know, and you want to have all the data and all the analytics that back up your gut but you're still betting on people. And so I would say that someone with that level of character, with that level of work ethic, with that drive and desire to be great, that he's got a higher likelihood to address his limitations and develop and improve. Not certainty, because there are plenty of great guys who don't, but a higher likelihood. So there's still a human aspect to it, and those are often the separators from good to great players or players that make it or don't make it.
1: Switching gears a little bit to the business side, you guys announced recently that you'll return to Montreal Mm -hmm. for a couple of games against the Yankees. And that's always a fun couple of days in Montreal. I'm wondering if you guys have ever contemplated going to different Canadian cities as far as uh, London or Vancouver or somewhere out east. It's just a lead?
2: logistical challenge because we don't find out our schedule early enough to be able to plan. Like we wouldn't want to go to Vancouver for an exhibition game and then come back to the East Coast. That level of travel would be a competitive disadvantage, like a significant one, not a small one. And to be frank and honest, Vancouver is the only one we really, we've really thought about or looked at. So if there was a year we knew we were opening on the West Coast, and we could arrange to play games in Vancouver prior to beginning, a, you know, the season on a West Coast. But I haven't looked at the whole history here, but I don't think there's been any time recently that we've started on the West Coast. So it's, and with an unbalanced schedule, it's really hard to figure out, you know, when or why that would happen. Um, so it makes it a little bit more challenging.
1: Have you guys ever thought about in-season? Because they've had, you know, the little league game in season that are you know basically non MLB destination they've traveled to Europe for the London games. Have you guys ever thought about tagging on a couple games to the Seattle road trip playing home games in Vancouver at Nat Bailey for example because it would look cool on TV it'd be yeah. maybe something different.
2: Yes, we've thought about it. Um, there are a number of enormous challenges that come with that, you know, everything from season ticket holders here to corporate partners here and it clearly would be a positive from a brand perspective. It clearly would be a positive for us, you know, in recognition of the uniqueness of us being a national team. And I think it would be a great way to recognize the fans in Vancouver who, in BC, who come down and support us in Seattle, and which is one of the more remarkable things to see. But it would be a very expensive and tough business proposition for us.
0: Something you said recently, uh, speaking of expensive things, that stuck out to me uh, had to do with this building. And you said that the upgrades that you'd like to make here have actually taken on a larger scope or larger scale. Are you able to expand it all on that? Does that have to do with development around the area with involvement? Yeah, not really. <laughs> no,
2: <laughs> I mean, I think for 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 now, I feel like we're we're getting closer to being able to to articulate that my focus is obviously the stadium and supporting a, you know, what I would say as a broader effort that is more than just the stadium, um, you know, and a broader vision. And, you know, I, I'm excited to contribute and be a part of that process, but it's no longer something I'm driving. You know, which has been an evolution since I've been here. I understand that and and see that and appreciate that. And, and to be frank, Arden, the bulk of my time and energy has been spent because of that on Dunedin, and you know we are barreling, and you guys will see it. I'm excited to show the two of you when you come down there. It, you'll see. Uh, will be like 75% done, 70% done, everything but the building, which is the biggest driver, but the stadium will be renovated. The minor league fields will all be done. Um, the minor league outbuildings, batting tunnels, covered agility fields, running hill, they'll all be done. Um, and the building will be under roof and largely constructed and we'll move in next summer. So that for me, going from worst or bottom two or three, to best or top two or three, but definitely best building in all of Major League Baseball has competitive implications that will translate to wins, that will enable us to do things and develop in a way and train in a way and rehabilitate in a way that will give us a a leg up on our competition so as i've focused that's kind of where i've been focusing my energy what i focus on what you can control
0: i understand this isn't your focus this building uh i do want to talk about my
2: focus like we're still need to where we can uh we still need to continue to improve fan experience we still need to focus on the infrastructure here we just put a brand new roof on right um we did a lot of work on the infrastructure around the stadium. And we've done a lot of work inside the stadium as well. And we'll have some major upgrades next year that I think will impact fan experience. So we'll continue to look for two ways to improve. But the fact remains that it is a, you know, what, 35-year-old building. And those age buildings are either going through massive renovations or being replaced throughout the sport. That's just the nature of it.
0: And it's outdated in the sport today in terms of how teams are trying to get the most out of their buildings, give fans different experiences. Absolutely. yeah. Um, It doesn't
2: provide the multitude of kind of segmented entertainment experiences that a modern stadium. So basically, our attendance is going to be more uh, susceptible to just competitiveness. Now, there's not a lot of other compelling reasons, you know, to come to our stadium.
0: It's such an interesting dilemma for me because you couldn't beat this location. Like, you couldn't put it in a better place in the city.
2: It's probably the most unique location in Major League Baseball. Like, I can't think. There are plenty of other urban stadiums, and maybe the Cubs and the Red Sox stand out, but. Neither of those are in the core of the city. Like I think this is if I could like just say, what is the best this is the best location in Major League Baseball for a team, with us with the way the city has evolved and grown, yeah, and all the residential buildings and you know, corporate base around and people working around the stadium. There's not a better location,
0: and as a byproduct to that, you're somewhat limited in what you can do. You look at you know buildings across the league, you know you're trying to build kind of multi-use spaces. It's not just the ballpark; yeah. it's a trying, mall, it's a movie theater. We're trying to be
2: creative enough that we're not limited. Yeah. But so stay
0: tuned. To the north, you got. I know you don't want to talk about this. To the stay north, tuned. You, you got a hotel. You got a stay tower. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned attendance drop in attendance across baseball. This yeah. is not. Yeah, you guys. Had the biggest drop, but it really was part of a greater trend. Houston had a drop, and they had the best team in the American yeah. League. The Yankees had a slight drop. Are you concerned at all when you know you think about extracting with my
2: MLB hat more than my Blue Jay hat or a Blue? We Jay could hat. we
0: could start with the Blue Jays because I like. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but so I'm, I'm not
2: concerned about the Blue Jays. You know, this is a byproduct of competitiveness. Yeah. You know, for us, it's more explainable. Um, I think it has to do with two or three different things. One is. We just talked about, you know, modern stadiums create a compelling fan experience, which provide different groups reason to come. Maybe the best bar in the city, maybe the best family zone in the city. You know, we don't have the multitude of tiers of entertainment to provide, so the people that are coming are the hardcore, true blue baseball fans, which I appreciate. You know, and they are. It's still coming in big numbers. By the way, we're not like we haven't dropped down to the bottom five, and we're still in a zone where we reflect the size of the city we're in. Baseball is still relatively new. You know, it's not like we're not a charter franchise. We don't have a hundred year history. We don't have six generation of baseball fans. It's still, you know, we're two or three generations in of hardcore Toronto Blue Jay fans. And so the resilience is not quite as deep as it might be in one of those six charter franchises, and you know, in major league baseball. So I think You know, there's still some fragility to that, but ultimately just, you know, winning is kind of the, you know, the driver of attendance, the largest portion of attendance here. And I think when we win, this city's already proven, you know, what happens. So we need to win, like ultimately On, on a global level of MLB. I think there are some problems systemically that we're wrestling with as an industry that we need to address that are bigger than just what we've seen in Toronto.
0: In terms of here in Toronto, my understanding is that due to the kind of unique meteorite structure here that the stadium is actually your greatest driver of revenue am i correct well i think
2: it's always for every single team it's one of the two biggest drivers yeah. for every team
0: but for you yeah. it, in terms of with the meteorite situation for here me, and,
2: for us and for us in toronto it is you know the ticketing revenue is the biggest driver
0: so when you see such a significant drop off in attendance and this and you're already you know collecting canadian dollars and paying american dollars that's and a
2: huge <laughs> challenge
0: you're already paying a bit of a tax there yeah. i can't Imagine how you wouldn't feel that in a significant way.
2: We're not feeling it in a significant way because the team is so young. You know, right. it's just, I think where that kind of rubber meets the road is when you start to say, okay, we need to take the next step. We need to outspend our revenue. We need to go out and get that big free agent or big two or three free agents even though, You know, fans haven't started to come back because we feel objectively we're that close. But that's been a part of the plan and a part of the strategy from day one with ownership that we knew that there would be a moment or juncture in time. I've openly said that the first juncture in time is this offseason, although it's, you know, again, it's you can't force something to happen, um, but we need to stay open minded to it happening this offseason or the trade deadline or next offseason. Those are the three most natural junctures for us. And we'll learn more about our team at each one of those junctures after this one. So it really is not has not impacted us to date, Arden, just because of the nature of the youth of our team and the byproduct of what that costs.
1: So, Mark, you've already been very generous with your time, but you did mention your MLB hat before. And so we do want to mention a couple ideas in relation to the competition committee that you're on and kind of get your thoughts on them. Basically, you know, you're in boardrooms, maybe not probably bigger than your office right here, but uh, at tables like this one, considering various ideas and some of them get passed into existence in the game and we see them take place and some of them are presumably left there on the boardroom table. So... I'll start with one here that I would personally love to see would be to implement some sort of a draft lottery so that the team that loses the most games is not assured of the number one pick. And again, that would have to be collectively bargained. But do you think there would be any traction toward creating some sort of a lottery system toward the top of the draft?
2: There's been a lot of time spent on looking at the draft. I feel like the changes in the draft over the past CBA and the CBA before that have helped a lot. But again, I'm, I'm getting back to trying to think through the lens of the team I used to work for that was a small market team. And the access to talent You know, when you're in a small market is really only amateur talent. You don't get access to free agent talent except for the bargain basement guys that are left in the end. So your only ability to win is to ensure that you pick at the top of the draft because despite what you may think as a fan the value of a number one pick compared to a number four pick is very expected return on those picks is not just a subtle drop-off. You know, it's very big. And then when you go from like four to eight, it's even bigger than that one to four. It's not like a gradual just, you know, decline. It's like those top picks are so valuable. So there's a lot that needs to be considered before that happens. I still don't believe any team aggressively tanks. I believe teams move resolutely in a strategic direction understanding like where they're placing the emphasis of their effort at any given juncture in time you still feel crappy when you lose and you still feel better when you win no matter where you are and you don't ever you can't ever put a group of people on a field or a bunch of executives in an office that say we're going to lose you know, was it part of Chicago and Houston's strategy that they would accept the fact? Yes, they were focused on things other than trying to win at those moments in time. But did they come out and say, we are going to lose to get the number one pick? I would almost bet, that, you know, my life that that's not the strategy is not to get the number one pick.
0: What's well, the difference between trying to lose and not trying as hard as you can to win in the short term, right? It's,
2: again, it's not even about not trying as hard as you can to win. It's about trying to build. Yeah. It's just your efforts are focused on other things. You're providing opportunity. And when you do that in mass, you know, you're turning over a team like we had to turn over an entire team. Right. That's not easy to do. We don't want to lose. But when you turn over an entire team, like all 25 guys, you're providing a lot of opportunity and it's a lot of volatility. And, and so it's, it becomes a bigger challenge.
0: 30 teams this offseason could increase their win total by maybe four to five by signing a Garrett Cole. And a lot of those teams aren't going to consider it because of the long term, the ramifications of that contract down the road and how it would limit for what lot, they can I do. Think for
2: a lot of reasons. I think there's, there aren't many teams who can take on a one year contract of that value, you know, and add that contract. But there are going to be others that say, okay, what do those four to five wins mean to us right now? Because the reality of any free agent contract, you're kind of front loading the value of the contract, right? So where you are in in the first few years, the nature of free agency, 80% of the time is that you're getting a player who's either at his prime or past his prime. So you're paying for some some decline in performance. You never know know, how rapidly it's going to occur. So you're front loading the value because you're getting the maximum performance, you know, in the first few years of the deal, and you accept that, know that you're not being tricked, right? You know,
1: that makes all kinds of sense, and history would show that that's the way it plays out.
0: So there's it's hard to dispute the data on that one. So my proposal is actually to expand the postseason. Shorten the regular yeah. season to 154 games. Um, allow more teams in. You might have to realign divisionally. You might have to go Sign to.
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm there.
2: <laughs> no, I mean those are. So those are those. Let me let me just back up and say a couple things. One, that is something that a lot of times being spent on a yeah. whole lot of time. Everything from the alignment it would take to do that to the number of teams we should have in the playoffs to the length of the season to playoff structure to and this is what I'd say in never in the I'm trying to think about the number of years I've been going to owners meetings I guess it's been about 11 or 12 years between going as president in Cleveland and then here never in my 11 or 12 years of going to those meetings have I heard the level of openness the level of how united it is across you know the 30 MLB teams the removal of self-interest, because normally it gets back to how does that just affect me, and the collective effort to kind of think about the game and how we can improve the game in general for fans and attract new fans. So, yes, those are things that are actually being talked about and considered. The hardest piece when it gets to big change within Major League Baseball is it has to be negotiated. It has to be bargained collectively with the union. Um, And so that gets into a history of you know that we need to overcome and i think we ultimately uh, i've always said i'm not an owner and i'm not a player i just love the game and i just hope that we can someday arrive at a relationship where we get past the posturing and down to just how do we grow the game because we all benefit if we grow the game
0: you mentioned the self-interest i assume that would be on the parts of owners who don't want to sacrifice home dates and those Well, revenues, for some
2: teams, those home dates are very valuable, right. you know, for probably five to seven teams. Yeah. And for 22, 23 teams, those games are not that valuable. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And I think that by expanding the playoffs, you would actually increase competitiveness across the league because more teams would have a chance. Which would grow revenue. Which would grow revenue, revenue, right? Because then if you have a more competitive team, you're attracting more fans to the But it's very hard
2: for an individual operator or owner to think about what that means. And this is like something, again, we're getting down to intellectualizing it, right? But baseball is much more local market revenue driven than any other major league sport, any other major league sport. So 70% of our revenues are determined by local revenue. So the national dollars compared to like the NFL where it's the flip of that model. And so the national dollars are much more the focus. How do we grow the national pot, you know? And here it's it's mostly and majorly baseball. People thinking about how they can grow the local pot.
1: Well, I'll speak for myself. I love playing games; they're a lot of fun. So <laughs> make it a play-in series. Yeah, yeah three games. A, that'd, that'd be great. Um, speaking of the off-season, the pace of it has been really slow in the last few years, and I'm not sure if this is a concern from an MLB standpoint. Whether there would be a preference for a kind of rapid-fire sequence of events like we might see in the NBA or the NHL. But from your knowledge of those conversations. How much of a concern do you think that is that the offseason now plays out so slowly? And do you think there will be any momentum toward trying to compress the action to create a bit more fan engagement and excitement?
2: I think it would be better for quality of life. You know, no for doubt. front office yeah. executives yeah. and yeah. for everyone if you know if we condensed. Yeah, we I mean that well, I never thought about that till I came up here and that yeah. clearly would be a, a preference for me. I don't think there's anything I think the reasons for it are there are a lot of really smart, thoughtful people that are really measured in the way they execute and framing values and are valuing players far differently than used to be done a long time ago. And a lot of like-minded, more and more like-minded front offices. I think that's causing, you know, teams to say, we're not going to jump, you know, we're going to, this is the value we've got. And I'm not sure that the people representing players are, as cognizant of that or buy into that and they're not willing to accept that so do i think that i think it would be better to not have a drag out do i think it really affects ultimately such a small portion of our fan base that buy tickets are really bearing down sorry ben i yeah. know this one hurts all <laughs> right on yeah. the off-season decision making yeah. so you know it's it's i'm not sure it's where we need to focus when we focus on where the leverage lies i'm not sure that's where we need to focus that makes sense
0: My last one is rapid fire electronic strike zone.
2: I think it has to happen. Me too. You know, I think in order for us to think about the other levers that impact pace of action and pace of play, which is I'm not sure what the best strike zone is, but we can't change the strike zone easily. We can't alter the strike zone. We can't look to improve that, use that as a lever to improve the game without instituting uh, an electronic... And I think just you know technology mandates that we can do it or allows that we can do it. We can do it well, we can do it consistently, and we can do it better than any human can do it, so we probably should. doesn't mean we should remove the human factor, um, but I think it probably represents an opportunity we should take advantage of.
0: When you have proof of concept in the Atlantic League where you still have an umpire back yeah, there. Arizona
2: Fall League, we're doing it now, and I think yeah. we'll test it in minor league baseball next year, which we will with any role before we actually apply it
0: interesting you've been very uh, generous with your time so thank you very uh, much
2: enjoy good baseball talk for me this is you know I love if I didn't love talking about it you know I'd be doing the wrong thing so I appreciate you guys coming down here and on a rainy you know fall day kind of sharing some baseball chatter thank you
0: Our thanks to Mark Shapiro, of course, for taking the time to uh, to join us here on Out the Letters. And uh, Ben, I think for you and I, the most interesting stuff might be kind of the inner workings of the front office and how they make decisions, and you know, that's the stuff that really informs like how we even report on the team and think about the team and analyze the team. So that stuff's really you know really interesting to us. And I bet you that that's not what fans will take away from the interview i bet you that they will look at the you know the comments on his job status his future in toronto and the fact that he has had he said i believe five or six opportunities or five or six times that he was approached with jobs that could have taken him away from the blue jays
1: right and it sounds like in every instance he Didn't even advance the interview phase because he declined to progress. He just decided that he would rather stay in his own situation, keep his focus here in Toronto. So that's interesting. I read a lot about this team. I had never seen that written anywhere. I've never heard Mark Shapiro say that anywhere. So unless we missed something, that's a a bit of a new development and some new context into the way that he looks at his job and the potential other opportunities that would be out there. And it sounds like, he sounds like, someone who wants to stay here and someone who will be staying
0: here. And, you know, the reality is he is entering the final year of his contract. And if there was something to announce with regards to an extension, it would have been announced and, you know, he would have found out about it. I think an extension will get done between Mark Shapiro and Toronto Blue Jays, but it hasn't been done yet. So, you know, clearly, you know, it's to his benefit to say, I've had other opportunities. You know, this isn't the only place that I can work. Like you, you can kind of see his perspective there. But I also think that it's really important to this franchise to retain Mark Shapiro. And I've, you know, I've made this point a number of times and on the radio and on television, and I'll continue to make it. You want stability at the top of your organization. You know, you don't want to have this revolving door of executives and and new philosophies and, and new people coming in with different opinions and changing things and you know what especially when you're in the process that the blue jays are in right now and rebuilding. I can't tell you whether or not it's going to work, and I can't tell you whether or not they're going to return to um, contention, but you are certainly not going to do that, and it's certainly not going to work if you continue changing things at the top and if you don't stick to a plan and stick to your beliefs and what you're trying to do. So, I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Mark Shapiro absolutely should be extended as the president of the Toronto Blue Jays.
1: I would agree with that. I think that this organization is trending toward something promising we don't know where it's going to lead and and they're certainly up against some intense competition but they've gotten to this point and Shapiro is very capable so I think it does make sense to continue and you don't know what the guarantee is especially in this division but you look at a couple examples within the AL East and the Yankees are much more stable in a lot of ways than the Red Sox have been Mm -hmm. they've had Brian Cashman who I think is the longest tenured GM in baseball yeah and he's been running the show since the 90s And then in contrast to that, you have the Red Sox, where they've had Theo Epstein, they've had Ben Charrington, and then he was ousted very unceremoniously when Dave Dombrowski came in in 2015. Basically, technically speaking, he declined to stay on, but the writing was on the wall. He was not going to be the decision maker there. Now he's here with the Blue Jays. And you've got, even since then, Mike Hazen, Dombrowski's gone, now the Red Sox are in the midst of another search to say nothing about Bobby Valentine and John Farrell and Tori Lovello and all these different managers who have come through. So the Red Sox have won a lot. That's not to say that you can't have transition and win and you can't have turnover and win. But if you have a good group in place, then it makes sense to keep them. And people are going to arrive at different conclusions. I mean, yeah. Shapiro himself said, Shatkins and talking about the perception that this is <laughs> you know not a front office that you'd want. And I know there are people listening to this who wouldn't want that front office in place and would rather see change, but... It's an interesting discussion and you can kind of see even within the division a couple uh, contrasting examples.
0: Yeah, I hadn't heard him use the uh, the S word before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, and you're right. And I think that, um, you know, it was interesting. I heard Stephen Brunt make this point on the radio the other day uh, on writer's block with Jeff Blair saying, you know, when the Blue Jays were kind of in the murky middle wilderness for like 20 years with uh, Paul Beeston and, and, and with Godfrey and... and there wasn't this continual like call for change. Wasn't this continual call to fire those guys? And the Blue Jays lost for far longer than they have uh, at this point. And maybe it's just kind of a symptom of you know the way things have changed, and we're in this like content overload era now. And, and it's just like this uh, you know internet like vacuum with this like constant need for opinions, and they have to be strong and you know takes and, and all these things. And so I understand that, like it's a different climate now it's a different era and you know like Paul Beeston dealt with different challenges from a media perspective and from a fan reaction perspective than the March Pyro does but you know I I thought it was a well-made point by Brent that you know (laughs) nobody was calling for those guys heads uh, you know after year after year after year of not being successful yeah and the next
1: year next two years will give us a lot more information and there might be a point that we look at the roster on the field and we say there's just not enough there you know, they never got that pitching that they thought and hoped and worked to acquire. It just never came. So that might be that point. We're not quite there in the timeline of this rebuild to say whether or not they've succeeded. And I don't think that they can get away either by just delaying indefinitely and never giving a firm date at some point. And I think 2020 clearly will be a transition year with are probably 75 to 85 win team. That's probably more closer to 75 than 85. And then after that, you've got to start competing for division championships and wildcard championships. And so ultimately, you're going to be judged by the results on the field, and that's the way this business works. But in the meantime, there's something to be said for continuity, for sure.
0: Yeah, it's a results-based business at the end of the day. But I mean, I am of you know a strong opinion that the Toronto Blue Jays franchise as a whole, like holistically, not just the major league team on the field, but holistically. Player development, high performance, Dunedin, Rogers Center, like, All around business operations is in a much better place today than it was when Mark Shapiro took over. I understand it's a Rogers Sportsnet podcast, right? (laughs) Like, I get it. But uh, that's honestly my, like, my strongly held opinion that, like, this franchise over the last five years has grown and evolved and gotten better under his leadership. Yeah. And, you know, as Shapiro was saying,
1: clearly this team the biggest lever for its success going forward will be the team on the field. And so that means that the systems that they have in place, the front office people who are working, you know, to use their words, collaboratively, within this process, that's going to have to yield results. And they are going to have to be the team that identifies a player ahead of a breakout. They're going to have to be the team that hits a home run in a trade. To this point, they haven't really done that. And so they've had some good drafts. They've had some good player development stories. You look around in baseball at the absolute best teams, they have all that stuff clicking at once. And to beat those teams, the Jays are going to need all of it clicking. They're not there. You know, I, I think that anyone within the Blue Jays would say they're not where they need to be, but the work is clearly in progress. And as you say, they are advancing and they have advanced the organization in various ways since. You know, the last five years,
0: I think they need to find like their edge. When you look at the Houston Astros, they had an edge on analytics for a very long time. And now a lot of other teams are you know playing catch up. But the Astros are one of the first teams to really like invest heavily in the Yankees as well. Mention the Yankees. They just spend more than anybody else. Uh, you could throw the Washington Nationals in there as well. A team that's going to represent the National League in, in the World Series. They've spent a lot of money, man. So, like, that's their edge. Look at the St. Louis Cardinals got as far as they did because their player development is really, really strong, you know, and they're just churning out you know, Flaherty's and DeYong's, you know, and uh, Carpenters. You know, these are guys that they have drafted and developed and turned into really good major leaguers. That speaks to their player development system and, you know, the strength of it. Blue Jays need to find what their edge is going to be and what they're going to be ahead of the curve on um, and what they're going to be better than other teams at because you know from a sheer resources standpoint, the Yankees and Red Sox have more resources. You know, right now, the Tampa Bay Rays, you know, appear to be ahead of the Blue Jays in terms of analytics, you know, in terms of innovation. Yeah. Um, so what are the Blue Jays going to be ahead of their competitors in? You know, what's their area going to be? I think that's one of my biggest like questions for this team going forward. And
1: I think as they try to go forward, we're going to see more change. I mean the current structure as we see it might remain in place but a lot of the people within that structure a lot of the players in particular I think this will apply to the coaching staff it might apply to the manager at a certain point where they make changes in pretty substantial ways because if the Blue Jays want to beat the Yankees and Red Sox clearly this current roster is not in itself going to be enough to get there they're going to need breakouts from within the roster development from up-and-coming guys like Vladimir and And they're also going to need to turn some players over. Maybe Teoscar Hernandez is someone that the Blue Jays believe in. But if after 400 more plate appearances, he still hasn't hit, you got to get rid of him. You got to move on. That same logic applies to people on the coaching staff or potentially behind the scenes in the front office. So it's not to say that they are a finished product because they are going to have more changes that they have to make and more tough choices that they have to make along the way.
0: And in two to three years, we're going to look back at this juncture in time and say, oh, they what they were doing like really positioned them well for success or we might say uh what they were doing didn't work out yeah we're just the thing is we're just on the middle we're in the middle of that story right now and we don't know what the conclusion is and it's going to be frustrating i think for a lot of fans to stay patient and wait for that conclusion which won't be coming until 2021 22 even
1: yeah and it's pretty clear that 2020 is not a year where the blue jays are expecting and counting on a playoff run yeah. and the players will say differently and the coaches will say differently next spring and as they should that's great you want that edge of field level but from within those offices that we recorded the podcast in i don't think that on a very intellectual logical level the blue jays expect to be one of the best teams in the american league next year but it's a process of building up and i think by 2021 you have to be right in that mix
0: we shall see. Uh, I want to let people know that uh, on YouTube this week, uh, you and I are going to be talking about your experience at the Arizona Fall League. Uh, you were down there uh, falling around Logan Wormuth and Kevin Smith. going to ask you lots of questions about their development and even just what the Fall League experience is like because it uh, sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so you can get that on YouTube. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Amal Delich, as always. I'm on Twitter at A M A N D E L. I see. Thanks as always for his hard work on the podcast. Thanks as always to you for listening. We'll get you next time on At The Letters.